field, but we now have further reporting this was that just required six hours ago. Evan Corcoran, the lawyer for Donald Trump responsible Turn for all things Mar-a-Lago, Christina Bob's boss effectively for those issues. He, this is what the judge found, yeah. was likely an unwitting participant in the crime committed by the former president related to his detention illegally of the national security documents, the classified top secret documents. In fact, she went on, according to sources that have, that, that have knowledge, she went on, Judge uh, Beryl Howell, to rule that Donald Trump had a criminal scheme that dated back all the way to the negotiations between his lawyers, him, and the National Archive about the original return of the documents. That led to the subpoena um, in May of last year by the Department of Justice in which Christina Bob and Evan Corcoran misled the Department of Justice said there was only 36 documents when there was another 101 or more at least that were still locked away at Mar-a-Lago. And the judge has found prima facie evidence that Trump knew that there were more documents that were at Mar-a-Lago and at least misled his lawyers. In any event, by finding that there was a crime, regardless of whether the lawyer, Evan Corcoran, knew that he was being used as a tool in the crime, there was a crime, and if there is a crime, there is no attorney-client privilege for the communication between Donald Trump and Evan Corcoran. Even more amazing reporting that's come out is that Evan Corcoran not only had a turnover to Judge uh, uh, Beryl Howell and then to the Department of Justice off of Friday's ruling, his notes, but that there are audio transcripts of telephone phone conversations between Donald Trump and Evan Corcoran, full transcripts that the Department of Justice is also about to get their hands on because of the order of Beryl Howell. We all know it would lead to an appeal. What we didn't know is how fast this appeal is moving. That's the locomotive part. Normal appeals to the D.C. Circuit Court of a ruling by, let's say, Beryl Howell, which has happened over the last two years, could take weeks or even months. This appeal by Evan Corcoran and Donald Trump, combined with another appeal of some other lawyers that, that worked for Donald Trump, it is moving in hours. The um, D.C. Appellate Court three-judge panel, randomly selected, happens to be two Biden appointees uh, and one Obama appointee. Get a couple so of Biden appointees. Panel. They rule, as of last night, that the, that the, the uh, uh, Trump organization, the Trump defense, has to uh, file their briefing by midnight, uh, Tuesday night, Wednesday morning. Midnight. That gave them about eight or nine hours to draft up their papers. And they only gave the Department of Justice six more hours into the wee hours of the morning, 6 a.m. Wednesday, to file their response. And the issue that the Department of, that the uh, three-judge panel wants to hear about from the Trump team, they want to hear about what are Just the documents specifically that Farrell Howell ordered get turned over to the Department of Justice? These notes, these transcripts, these other items that you're arguing over. What are they and why shouldn't they be turned over on the finding of prima facie crime committed by Trump? Of course, they're going to argue there was no evidence, not enough, to meet at least the initial threshold hurdle of a crime committed by Donald Trump for the Department of Justice at just uh, a couple hours you know from this morning they wanted the the three judge panel wants to know from them why shouldn't we continue to extend this stay that they ordered about Beryl Howell's order 
which has been in place as an administrative stay, why shouldn't we extend it and allow for full briefing? Right? Why are we doing this in a stampede way on a fast track? That's, that's the issue for the Department of Justice, and that's their opportunity for the U.S. to talk about national, concern, uh, national security concerns, the pace at which the Mar-a-Lago uh, grand jury is moving, like, Judge, we're like done with the grand jury. You know, this is one of my theories. And we got to move quickly here. This is the last witness to come in with now a finding of a crime being committed by the judge, uh, you know, uh, 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 committed by Trump, found by the judge. So these are the issues that are now at stake. Who is the appellate panel? That's interesting because we've learned in Legal AF, my podcast, and here in these hot takes that judges matter and who the judges are and the composition of these appellate panels matter. And who are they here? Well, I think most of the people that follow Legal AF and this kind of hot take are going to find uh, some comfort in the panel. We have Cornelia Pillard, who was appointed by Obama. We've got Michelle Childs, who was appointed by Biden, and Florence Pan, who was appointed by Biden. You may remember Michelle Childs because she was on the shortlist for the U.S. Supreme Court and the seat that went to Ketanji Brown-Jackson. She was the South Carolina judge originally, that Lindsey Graham was pushing Biden to put on to the U.S. Supreme Court. But she's a you know Democrat appointee and a solid jurist, so we feel good about Michelle Child. Florence Pan, feel great about Florence Pan, and C- Cornelia uh, Pillard. And look how fast they're moving. These judges are giving lawyers minutes, hours to file briefing. Normally, as I said earlier in the hot take, this would take months. We'd be talking about this in June, July. We're talking about this in hours, like midnight, 6 a.m. And, and from there, I expect a ruling by this three-judge panel sometime Wednesday, maybe Thursday at the latest. I mean, this is going to go really, really fast. Now, let me talk about the prima facie finding by Judge Beryl Howell that, the, that Trump committed a crime. That is not the same level of evidence that's required for an indictment. It's not preponder. It's not you know beyond a reasonable doubt. It's not even at the level where a prosecutor like Jack Smith would immediately move to indict. Another but it is angry a minimum threshold to level. This prima facie Justice level that there's enough evidence to state a case against Donald Trump that he committed a crime. This may sound familiar to you because Judge Carter in California in the Central District months ago ruled similarly that Donald Trump and John Eastman worked together to commit a crime and were in a conspiracy concerning uh, fraudulent electors, you know, fake electors, uh, trying to interfere with the peaceful transfer of power when he ordered that John Eastman turn over most of his um, uh, emails and texts to the Jan 6 committee. Similar ruling. Similar ruling. Now, Judge Beryl Howell's ruling, which we've gotten a little more flesh on the bone here, did not completely grant the Department of Justice's motion to get an unfettered um, uh, testimony from Evan Corcoran to the grand jury. There are six categories that Beryl Howell ordered that Evan Corcoran testify to the grand jury. That's an issue that's up on appeal. We don't know exactly the six categories, but we're pretty sure that at least one major topic that he's going to have to testify to, unless the appellate court reverses the decision, is about his interaction with Donald Trump 
about the subpoena compliance. Hashtag we also believe it's going to involve the videotape that the, that the Department of Justice got outside the doors of the Mar-a-Lago quote-unquote locked room showing movement of boxes in and out of the room at the same time that Evan Corcoran was telling the Department of Justice that everything was safe, locked away, and status quo. Department of Justice, FBI knows that's not true. They've got witness testimony, they've got video evidence, and Evan Corcoran was put in that unenviable position of effectively lying to the Department of Justice, as did his underling, Christina Bob, who he had signed an affidavit and declaration that to the best of her knowledge, all of the top secret documents were contained in an envelope with 36 pieces of paper in it. When they knew or should have known, or at least Trump misled them because they, he knew, Trump knew or should have known that there was a hundred or more sitting in other parts of Mar-a-Lago. This is the fast-paced rocket of a story. This is what we follow on hot takes. We got to do them every day. Sometimes we got to do them every hour. That's how fast the wheels of justice are moving against Donald Trump and those around him in various jurisdictions, whether it's the District of Columbia, Fulton County, Georgia, New York, Manhattan, where we expect an indictment today related to the Stormy Daniels cover-up and the fraudulent books and records issue involving Donald Trump. You know, but we got to follow and follow these stories wherever they're going to take us and bring this kind of clear analysis to our listeners because that's what they expect. You're not going to get it from mainstream media. You are going to get it from a podcast that I co-anchor on Wednesdays and Saturdays called Legal AF. We're going on tonight, uh, Wednesday night, with a live version at 8 p.m. to cover what we expect to be the indictment and ultimate arrest and surrender of Donald Trump in Manhattan, in the Manhattan DA's office. We'll cover that and all the other civil and criminal cases that involve Donald Trump and are at the intersection of law and politics. If you like my hot takes, I do them about every day on the Midas Touch Network. And you can follow me on social media at MS Popak. This is Michael Popak, Legal AF Reporting. Lock him up. Indictment season is upon us. Celebrate with the new indictment season t-shirt and v-neck exclusively at store.midastouch.com. You're welcome, America. Just doing my part to save the
Right. I have a horrible habit of grinding my teeth. That just oh my god, TMI. And Roberta Kaplan filed the documents. Roberta Kaplan is Eugene Carroll's lawyer. And the document that she filed, the letter brief to the judge, um, on the heels of E. Jean Carroll's deposition, just wrote, look, we got this notice, we got this call from uh, Haba, who said she's withdrawing from the case and that they're bringing in Takapina, a uh, new lawyer, and that they wanted a brief delay on the deposition. Look, Judge, we had trial set in April. We're okay with Haba withdrawing. We just want to make sure that this isn't going to delay the trial there. And then Haba then wrote a letter back basically saying, I'm not actually out. Takapina is going to be the lead trial lawyer. I'm still clinging on. I'm still, I'm still around. I'm still in the orbit. Um, and the sole reason that we, we need to talk about scheduling, though, Haba wrote, but the sole reason isn't because of uh, the change of ways, but they clearly want to move that trial. And you saw it in Hobbes' response letter when she used the term, the sole reason why we want to talk about scheduling. And so Haba lies about everything. Obviously, Haba called Kaplan and said, I'm withdrawing. And then she begged Donald Trump to like stay on in some capacity. You know, and they're just playing games, you know, and so Roberta Kaplan did the right thing, sent a letter to the court. So really two things to two things to talk about. I don't think we need to be right to the court. It's hard to interact. She's an agent of chaos. Whatever. You know, doesn't really matter. She she's not a trial lawyer. She won't be able to try the case. Takapina is gonna try the case regardless. But I guess to me, Popak, what's more interesting has been your hot takes on Takapina, this new Trump lawyer who's taken multiple adverse positions, one in the insurrection of sentencing and the other in this very specific case. And it's odd because, you know, lawyers can have different clients, but like direct adverse positions, it's, it's, it, it comes very close to the line of an unwaivable conflict. Um, it comes very close. Um, what do you think? Yeah, so Joe, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's, this is what happens when lawyers who are practicing lawyers are also TV commentators and talking heads about the very same matters that they one day may want to be engaged as counsel. I think you either have to retire and become a legal commentator or do what we do, which is be a legal commentator, but never take a case for somebody that we've critiqued on the show because it's going to come back to bite you and the client in the butt, including maybe in court, if Robbie Kaplan has her way and plays the old tapes or quotes from Joe Tacopina, legal commentator, about the very case that he... So, not to belabor the point, and everybody's waiting to say to Krauss, who hasn't seen my hot take, Joe Tacopina, bulldog lawyer to the stars, has represented every rapper around, has represented A-Rod, represented the guy that was accused of killing the poor uh, co-ed down in the Bahamas, a number of uh, uh, years ago, he takes controversial cases. He was a prosecutor, I think, in the Bronx. He's got a good trial representation. But this is yet another example of Donald Trump picking the wrong lawyer for the wrong case. In the case of Alina Haba, she's not qualified really to handle any sophisticated litigation for him at all. She's just a puppet mouthpiece for whatever Donald 
Trump's musings are at any given moment, and she just signs her name to it and files it like a lawyer, exercising no independent judgment because she doesn't have any. We know that because she's been on cable news attacking the very judges in real time that she's appearing in front of for Donald Trump, always a dangerous gambit to play. Joe Duck, so she's wrong for almost all the cases. The only thing right about her was, I don't know, if he thought that a New York jury would 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 want a female lead trial lawyer cross-examining E. Jean Carroll, the 78-year-old woman, now 78-year-old woman who claims she was um, sexually assaulted in a uh, Manhattan department store dressing room, that maybe they want a female voice. But Lena Hobb is not that kind of person that would engender any kind of um, empathy or sympathy from a jury or authenticity from the jury. The jury, as you know, Ben, but to, to share it with our listeners and followers, one thing is certain, regardless if it's state or federal, doesn't matter the decade that I'm talking about. Juries historically will smell a fraud with a lawyer or a witness a mile away. They will smell inauthenticity and they, they create um, opinions about the lawyers, and if they don't trust the lawyer, which I don't know how they could have trust Alina Abba, I mean, she'd have to start jury selection if she was the lead trial lawyer doing <laughs> breaking a cardinal sin, which is she'd have to break the fourth wall and say to the jury, do you know me? Have you seen me on television? Have you seen me make comments about this judge? I mean, that's a terrible way to start your, your jury selection. That's her. Don't have the penis no better because he's the wrong guy into the job as well. First of all, I'm not sure having a bulldog male trial lawyer going after Eugene Carroll on the stand in front of a New York jury is the right look, if you know what I mean. Secondly, he's got his own problem because in, in 2020, he went on or he gave a quote to CNBC in which in this case that he's now the lead trial lawyer as of Tuesday, he said that that the Article One of the or, or uh, the first of, Article One of the U.S. Constitution, setting the the powers of the presidency, does not include doing an ad hominem attack against somebody that's accusing you of sexual assault. You're not. You're, there's no such thing as the mudslinger in chief. Uh, you know, taking a really hard tack against Donald Trump. Now look, I know. I know that uh, Robbie Kaplan, lawyer extraordinaire, rock star lawyer. Is, is trying to figure out whether she can bring that into a courtroom in front of a jury. Um, and I know there's going to be a fight over it, right? There's going to be that motion in limine, the motion to limit pra uh, practice that you and I talk about a lot. He's going to try to keep it out because it's going to be prejudicial. He's going to blow the mind of the jury. It's going to be not, you know, and she's going to argue, well, I think what's good for the goose is what's good for the gander. He's representing him now. And these are statements that he's made about my client and about his client before. And we think it's relevant. There's going to be that fight. I'm not sure how Lewis Kaplan comes out on that, but I think Robbie tries. And, what, and what's Takapina going to say to the jury? Well, at one time, I uh, didn't trust him and I criticized him, but now I've seen the light and I think he's a truth seller. And my client, Donald Trump, that's going to be a very hard place for Joe to take. Now, I don't know why Donald Trump picked him. Now, he's using him in a number of cases. He's using it in this potential defamation case against Mark Pomerant, the former special prosecutor in the Manhattan DA's office. We've already seen him appear there. But as you said earlier, he's criticized Trump as recently as two weeks ago, representing another Jan 6th insurrectionist client, the one uh, Julian Cater, 
who is going to be sued by Brian Sicknick's family because he led to the death of Brian Sicknick and spraying bear spray into that poor Capitol Police officer's face and disabling him. And, he, and Brian Sicknick died a day later. And that was, and then in the sentencing for Julian Cater, Joe Tacopina, maybe forgetting that he was about to be hired by Donald Trump in this matter we're talking about, Eugene Carroll, said that let my guy off the hook and lower his sentencing because he was just following the big lie perpetrated by people at the highest level. That's Donald Trump. I mean, I joked on my hot take. Joe talks out of so many sides of his mouth that he must keep a list of which case is this? Is this the case where I'm, I, I trash Donald Trump to support one other client? Or is, am I representing Donald Trump for this one? I mean, you've got to really keep it straight, which is weird because I've never in my 32 year career ever taken an opposite side of an existing client in another case because I knew it was going to get rammed up my backside. At some point, I'd lose all credibility with the court and maybe with the jury. So, raw. Lena Haba, wrong trial lawyer for the job, obviously. So radioactive, she can't even get into a courtroom any longer for Donald <laughs> Trump. And I think, <laughs> just a little, little, little bit of a twist, you said she may have begged Donald Trump to stay in the case. What I think happened is she, she, she committed a Freudian slip, what they call a Freudian slip in Washington. She accidentally told the truth. She told Robbie Kaplan, who we trust implicitly, who's been on Legal Era podcast before, talking about Eugene Carroll, and other things, she told her, I, I'm leaving the case, Joe Tacopin is coming in as of Tuesday, we've got the second or third or fifth day of the uh, the deposition of E. Jean Carroll, I presume, on the new civil rights claim, and I'm not taking that deposition, he's taking it, we need a day or two extension, and, you know, Robbie took notes, and said, okay, great, but I wanted to cut them off at the pass right now, so that there wouldn't be any argument that if she agreed to an extension, of time to let Joe Tacopina get up to speed, remembering that Alina Haba took the first round of depositions against E.G. Carroll, which we reported on, and have been released in transcripts that are now available, and that we've shown on the Midas Touch Network and Illegal AF. But Joe's now going to do, I guess, the next round of depositions with E.G. Carroll. Robbie didn't want to have it thrown back in her face, but she allowed for an extension, and therefore we're going to extend this hard April trial date um, for the combined defamation and civil rape case that's now going to apparently be tried by Joe Tacopina. So she wrote a letter, you do a lot of letter writing to judges in the, in, the, in the Southern District of New York, informing her, informing the judge, sorry, that, yeah, there's a new new, new guy coming in, we, we might be cooperative in a day or two on this, but we are, we are adamant about a red line in the sand about the trial date. She freaked out, I think. Haba, oh crap, the thing I told her sort of in private, is now writ large in a filing in the public docket. And, th and then they had to double back and say, no, 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 she's going to stay in. They need, let's just talk trial strategy for the last moment. They need some female lawyer at counsel for Donald Trump in a civil race case. I looked at Joe Tacopina's website. He doesn't seem to have that. Uh, maybe as a young associate. But he does, and it can't be window dressing. The jury smells the fraud. If the jury thinks that the lawyer sitting there is only sitting there for window dressing purposes, they feel like they've been had and they get mad. So you got to have somebody who can do a substantive role in the case. I don't know if they found that. The rumor on the street is they've been dialing around trying to find a female 
sophisticated trial lawyer who will jump into the space with Joe and haven't yet been successful. So I think they keep a lead if they're not. But the day that trial happens, if they don't have a colleague that's female with them, they have, a, they have another big problem in that case. Popox, you gave a very graphic imagery before that I'm not going to let you get away with, with things being shoved up you know where. I just wanted to flag, flag that one. Um, number two, we've got Alina Haba, who lies about everything, and Roberta Kaplan, who tells the truth about everything. So, who do you believe in that conversation isn't really even a close call. Um, but I'm with you. That trial, that trial is June. That trial is April. Before we know it, there's going to be jury selection there. Trump's going to try to delay it if you watch. You can already see it in Hoppy Meadows uh, responding to the judge. The sole reason, the sole reason why we don't, why, why we need to have a meeting about scheduling is because of, or, or not the sole reason, is because of a change of lawyers. But, uh, anyway. I want to talk about this Manhattan District Attorney ramping up. I mean, look, we've said it here, you know, I've said nothing. I agree with everybody. Everyone's frustrations against Alvin Bragg and frustrations may be putting it lightly. I share. I'm with you. But all I was delivering, you know, so we had Alvin Bragg on. Karen Friedman-Agnipro, KFA, he's the number two. Previous number two in the entire Manhattan District Attorney's Office. She interviewed Alvin Bragg. You know, and by the way, I was reading those comments. I saw the criticism of, of, of him. Um, you know, the only thing that I was saying is, look, these criticisms are valid because, you know, but when you have people like Mark Pomerantz and Carrie Dunn out there saying, we were ready to indict, and then this got, this got taken away from us. And you've got Pomerantz putting out a new book that's basically reflecting on that as well. And we all know that Trump needs to be held accountable. The only point that I was making is, look, everything that Bragg seems to be doing is suggestive that he's going to criminally indict Donald Trump. Bragg is the only district attorney in the entire country who's gotten a criminal conviction of a Trump entity to date. There's a lot of other DAs in the country who have jurisdiction over Trump. It's not like Trump only exists in New York. Uh, he's the only one who's got a successful criminal conviction. I think that's something. Not Brad's fault that the penalty is only one the New York state law. He got the max penalty. There are other things that Brad said. Brad's fault that that's the crime he was trying. Trump orbit for, which is that weak sauce claim. And then people's other criticism of Bragg also was, look, Weisselberg got this sweetheart deal. Even there, one of my points was, but it wasn't like Weisselberg has immunity from all other criminal charges. He could still be convicted on other stuff and go to jail again. It's not like he's relieved of insurance fraud. He pled guilty to certain tax fraud, very narrowly defined tax fraud, and that's it. But Bragg can go and criminally prosecute him on other things. Bragg's doing that right now, not criminally prosecuting him, but is utilizing the fact that I'm going to prosecute you again now for insurance fraud. The same type of insurance fraud that we see in New York Attorney General Tisha James' civil lawsuit that he's doing civilly is criminal 
implications of that you being the CFO. So I'm going to criminally prosecute you again. If you're in Rikers right now, how do you like Rikers? And now that Weisselberg's in Rikers, which is like one of the worst places to possibly be in ever and in the country, some of the worst places to be, maybe even in the world, you got Bragg basically saying, look, how, how does this feel? You want to cooperate now? And then also impaneling a grand jury in New York that almost certainly is going to criminally indict Donald Trump and sue. And so I just think, and I always say, this is why the wheels of justice move slowly. This is what I've said. I said, look, if Bragg becomes the first to criminally indict, and um, you know, Bragg becomes the first to criminally indict and goes after Weisselberg again, it kind of addresses, I think, a lot of those, uh, some of the concerns. At least, Popak, what do you think? Yeah, but I, but I think it is, and I'm not, not here to defend Alvin Bragg. I think that's exhausting to try to do that. But I, I think his strategy is now clear. As you said, the only prosecutor in America to get 17 wins against a Trump entity for criminal conviction. And he didn't need Alvin Bragg to implicate and to um, incriminate Donald Trump in the first trial, because that first trial wasn't against Donald Trump. It was against Donald Trump's entities, payroll and Inc. He wasn't a named defendant in that case. So he didn't need, uh, Al, he didn't need Alan Weisselberg, the former CFO, to flip for him on that. He needed to tie the organization together to the criminal fraud of tax evasion, which he did, obviously, because the jury came back very quickly with a 17-count conviction. So step one, what, it, what is now apparent to me in Alvin Bragg's process, was to squeeze one quarter of the lemon of Alan Weisselberg to get his conviction of the Trump organization, then send Alan Weisselberg away 12 miles, just 12 miles is between the Manhattan DA's office and Rikers Island where the, prison, where the jail sits which means you can go visit him a lot. It's not in some, some faraway place. It's just uh, 12 miles down the road in upper Manhattan, make a right into the, into the river, into the East River off of Queens, and there's Rikers Island. So keep him, keeping him close. Now he goes back with, for the second squeeze of the lemon to go against Donald Trump in the case of Stormy Daniels. And he uses now for the full squeeze, as you said, softening him up. It's like a boxer you know, working the solar plexus working the abdomen with body blows for six or eight rounds and then goes for the head and the knockout in the final rounds. And that looks like what Alvin Bragg's now doing. 78-year-old, 79-year-old uh, Alan Weisselberg, how do you like the three squares a day in Rikers Island in general population or otherwise? How do you like that? You like that? Because that's where you're going to sit. Now let's talk about insurance fraud. And now let me put you on the horns of another dilemma. Two dilemmas, Mr. Weisselberg. One, we're going to go after you for insurance fraud because you defrauded um, Zurich Insurance Company in telling them that the insurance on property value that they gave to the company was based on independent appraisals. So when they said, well, how do you know the uh, this $500 million or $1.5 billion for that piece of property that Trump Ward owns? We'll insure it. You have it backed by an independent appraisal, right? And Al Weisselberg said, yes which was a lie, because there are no independent appraisals. There are no independent appraisals. It's all conjured out of the mind of Donald Trump, who one day just said, oh, I think Trump Tower is 
worth $2 billion. I think my apartment in Trump Tower is 30,000 square feet when it's really 15,000 square feet. So they lied to Zurich because based on that, Zurich insured these buildings and set premiums on an amount that was fraudulent. The other horn of a dilemma is to protect Ivanka. Now, I don't know directly the relationship between Alan Weisselberg and Ivanka, but Ivanka is in the crosshairs of the insurance fraud itself because she signed applications related to the insurance where they repped and warranted that these independent um, appraisals were done. So if he wants to protect Ivanka, maybe, the daughter, and not spend the rest of his natural-born life and die in a, federal, in a state prison, then he'll have to cooperate because this isn't five months. This is five to ten years, and he's already a felon convicted. So the sentencing guidelines in New York go up even higher for what would be his second conviction in less than a year. So Alvin Bragg has him by the you-know-what and is squeezing now at the moment he needs to, which is to have him testify about Stormy Daniels. To remind everybody, what is the link between Weisselberg and Stormy Daniels? Weisselberg, longtime CFO, chief financial officer. Michael Cohen, friend and fellow podcaster, has already testified and has cooperated with the Manhattan DA's office with its new special grand jury that no money moved, no money flowed in the Trump organization without Alan Weisselberg knowing about it and without Donald Trump approving it. He testified that Donald Trump told him to go pay off Stormy Daniels during the 2016 campaign, uh, sort of a catch and kill program, go catch that story and kill it so that it doesn't back up on me in my, in my campaign about the affair that I had with her and pay her $130,000 out of your own funds, Mr. Cohen, Michael Cohen, my lawyer, and we'll reimburse you. That's what happened. Michael Cohen stroked a check for $130,000 out of the account of Michael Cohen, which went ultimately to Stormy Daniels through her lawyer. And then Michael Cohen got reimbursed by the Trump organization with a ledger entry in their books, fraudulent, that said legal retainer or legal services rendered. That wasn't a payment to Michael Cohen for legal services rendered, which Michael testified under oath. That was a reimbursement for the Stormy Daniels payment. That they have in documentary evidence with Alan Weisselberg approving it, because he approved all the books and records. And the controller, Mr. McConney, is going to also be, of course, in the crosshairs on that. So you're looking at basically life or death in prison, a death sentence, Mr. Weisselberg, if you don't testify. And we're going to go after Ivanka Trump as well. Won't you cooperate now? That's the two-step process. That's the two-step fruit squeeze that I think <laughs> Alan, uh, that I think Alvin Bragg is doing. And to paraphrase our our illustrious colleague uh, Karen Friedman Agnifilo, in a in a interview that she gave to the New York Times in mid-January, Alvin Bragg year one, we could all take pot shots on it. Alvin Bragg, the start of year two of his administration of his of his tenure, he's starting to get his sea legs. And nothing gets your sea legs faster than a 17-count felony conviction <laughs> win against an entity owned by Donald Trump. Couldn't agree more with you there. And so with David Pecker going, I mean, all these names, too, man. I'm just, i got to reflect on them. I, mean, I think it's Picard, but I don't care. I like David Pecker. You got, you got, you got Pecker and the Stormy <laughs> Daniels, Donald Trump ordeal. You, 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 can't, you can't make this stuff up. Um, we're going to see more witnesses testifying before this criminal grand jury. 
I am sure one of the offerings we have here at the Midas Touch Network, as well as Michael Cohen and I, will, will have a podcast called Political Beatdown, uh, where, I mean, look, it's not every day you have the witness in the criminal case against uh, a former president as a co-host on a podcast. We got that here on the Midas Touch Network, and Cohen's become a very good friend of mine. Uh, and just a great all-around guy. So check that out. Political Beatdown, wherever you get your podcast. It's if you like Lee Joy, you'll probably like Political Beatdown, the new podcast on the Midas Touch Network. Um, what you'll also like, I think, is the uh, Political Beatdown, if you will, or the Criminal Beatdown, if Saturday you will, of George Santos, uh, <laughs> where a broad will get their just desserts here. And, you know, Santos is just a horrific human being at every level. I mean, lying about every aspect. Just the sick, sick lies about mother dying in 9-11 and his mom survived 9-11. None of it even close to being true because mom was even in the country at the time that his dad survived 9-11, that he had employees who who survived the Pulse nightclub shooting, that all lies that he had... Uh, his grandparents were Holocaust survivors. The total lie that he was Jewish. The total lie that he worked in these jobs and that job and went to this school. And oddly specific, Baruch volleyball. The, the, the new weird one is, is what was the one? Spider-Man. And that that the failed. This is perfect. There was a tremendous, tremendously uh, well-known, notorious failed Broadway show called Spider-Man After Dark. I was in New York at the time. It, it was like one of the highest um, capital raise for a Broadway show. Everybody thought it was going to be successful. $80 million to put on Spider-Man After Dark, which, by the way, as an aside, was plagued with the ghosts of theater past. Spider-Men fell and hurt themselves during practice and rehearsals. I mean, this thing was like you know, doomed to fail. Overall, people used to, this is sad, people in New York used to go get tickets to watch it to see what mishap would happen on stage because the set was so complicated and the uh, the aerial flying around. This is the Broadway show that George Santos has now claimed that he was a producer of, meaning he raised money. And, of course, the real executive producer and producer of the show um, denied any connection at all. I think he just takes your bio, Ben, and just, comes up with versions of it and then lies about it. And that's why, you know, I, 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 I love what I do at Midas Touch too much, but I've been so tempted, because that's my home district, the third congressional district. I've been so tempted, I was like, look, he literally lies about the things that I actually do. I said, so if I go to that third district, I'd be a good foil. If I went just not now. <laughs> if I went to the third congressional district and I ran for Congress, but I think that, I, I honestly, I mean this sincerely, I think the work we do at the Midas Touch Network, the work that you and I do at Legal AF, I, I think is a, is a truly a, a larger and more significant platform than what I could actually accomplish if I ran for that third congressional seat. And so I, I don't oh, think I'm going great. to, uh, I don't think I'm going to do that. But I toy with it every that. now and then. I was like, I would love to, I would love to just Did you that. know, did you know, and I learned this because of George Santos, who we're going to talk about now, whether he should stay or he should go, and who's going to prosecute him first. Did you know you don't actually have to live in the district 
at the time that you're running. You have to eventually be there. But, you know, it's, local government is different. A lot of local government, you got to, like, live in the district. You, don't, you could do it from California. Well, I, I think there's different states have different, you know, but um, it's a work in progress. It's a work in progress in my mind. So, four more years. Four more. <laughs> so we've talked about DeSantis being investigated for campaign finance. Uh, no, Santos. No, you said DeSantis. Uh, all, DeSantis, I'm sure, will be investigated for campaign finance for one day. So it's all. They're all this. You know, they're all. This, the Santos, Santos, Santos. But yes, we've talked about Santos being investigated for uh, campaign finance fraud. And what we talked about on the last episode where the Department of Justice told the SEC, don't file anything yet. We've got this. And one of the main issues they're looking at is Santos uh, claiming that he loaned his campaign $700,000, but it seems to just be an end run around the campaign finance limitations of $5,800 per election cycle uh, for $5,600, $2,800 in the primaries, and then $2,800 in the general elections, um, and basically pooling this money and then claiming he loaned it to himself, but in fact, um, it came from outside sources. It, it seems so obvious. Um, there's also, you know, he's uh, tried to do end run around disclosures by making all of his payments $199 in costs so he wouldn't have to provide receipts for things, which just, again, uh, you can't do that. There's so many campaign finance violations. He's going to be prosecuted for that. It's just a matter of when, not if. Then the new one that the FBI and the Eastern District of New York federal prosecutors opened up, the story we've talked about on the Midas Touch Network before, but now they're the criminal investigation. Santos had a fake charity. It's not a real charity called like Pets of the World United or some ridiculous name like that, was not a 501c3, was not registered. He lied and claimed it was registered. That alone is a crime. But what he would use this for was to prey on disabled military veterans. This is who the this is who a Republican is in twenty forty three right now. Because they elevated him, they promoted him to committees. Granted, he removed himself from committees, but the Republicans support this stuff. They they were aware of this stuff when they put him on committees. And so he created a sham charity that preyed on military veterans uh, in the most insidious of, and despicable of ways, too. I mean, preying on military veterans at all is disgusting. But what he would do is he would say that if their pets got sick, uh, he would provide life-saving services for their pets. And so with this one individual, for example, Asaf, who has the text messages, disabled homeless veteran whose pitbull mix, Sapphire was the name of the pitbull mix, um, was developing a tumor and was going to be euthanized if there was not a surgery. And Santos said, let me help you. Let's do a GoFundMe. Put up the GoFundMe. And it's the most sympathetic facts. Disabled homeless veteran, dog has a tumor. So you raise thousands and thousands of dollars, and then when the disabled homeless vet went to actually get the surgery, Santos is like, I, I don't, you know, first Santos would send him to places, and the places would be like, we don't know what you're talking about. Like, we don't, we, we, who's Pets United? We, if you want to pay us, we'll do the surgery, but we're not just going to do the surgery for free. And so Santos would give him the end run, you know, the runaround. And then finally, the military veteran said, I realize what you're doing to me. You're, you're defrauding me. And then Santos sent him like these horrible text messages like, you are selfish. 
how dare you, why are you being so needy, pets, pets of the world united, or whatever the stupid charities, fake charities called, you know, we care about these issues, our reputation is on the line. Anyway, there's wire fraud, mail fraud, a ton of fraud there that the FBI is investigating, and uh, Santos will be prosecuted undoubtedly for that as well. Um, there's no indictment yet, but like, how low can you, how low can you go? Preying on disabled military vets by lying to them about getting life-saving care for their dogs. By the way, Sapphire died and ended up getting euthanized because didn't get the surgery. Um, just like horrific, just like a horrific human being at every level. And the MAGA Republicans are like, Santos is great. We love, we love this guy. He's, he's our guy, Santos. This is so strange. Let's talk about how to remove him. Because I'm, I'm not buying that he made the decision on his own not to step down from the committee. I'm pretty sure somebody in McCarthy's office sat him down in a private dungeon somewhere and told him, you're embarrassing the speaker, you need to kind of step down because the speaker's position is that we're going to, we're going to do a full ethics investigation to see where those facts lie. And so that's not a great sign that all of that original um, wagon circling that you and I talked about a couple of weeks ago where Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene were treating him as like their little buddy, their little brother, their little plus one for every vote is now sort of, you're off your committees. I don't think that was his own thought process. This is not by way of defense. This is my comment. I don't feel sorry for him, but he's got a mental disorder. I don't know what it is, but there's no way that a, a, a rational human being that's not somehow pathological or psychotic or whatever would, would create this many lies that are so easily refuted and so easily corroborated that they are lies in one lifetime, in one two-year period of time uh, without having some sort of mental disorder. I don't know what it is. I'm not qualified to give that that advice off this podcast, but something is seriously wrong with George Santos. How do you remove somebody? We've talked about who's going to catch up faster, the, the House and have so many facts in front of them that they can't deny it any longer, or the criminal prosecutors. Brazil restarting their criminal prosecution, five to ten year sentence for the uh, identity theft and check, bad check writing that he did in Brazil. Younger. West Westchester district attorney, because it happened in her district, Letitia James. She doesn't like when candidates lie and grift to people to raise funds and, uh, and get elected as a result. Eastern District, as you said, Department of Justice telling the FEC, Federal Election Commission, we got this. Step aside, we're looking at it from a criminal perspective. But we go to the Constitution for a moment. We like you and I like going to the Constitution, referring to it, taking our little pocket, a little pocket uh, versions of it. Article 1, Section 5 says that each house may determine its own rules. We just did all the whole rules package thing when McCarthy was finally out on the 15th round being speaker. And to continue the phrase in Article 1, Section 5, punish its members for disorderly behavior, not defined and remove them on a two-thirds vote. To exp it's called actually expel, uh, but it's effectively removing them on a two-thirds vote. Let's do the math. Two-thirds vote in the House is 291 votes to expel. Well, we know all the Republicans, oh, sorry, all the Democrats will vote for that, so that's 220 and a quarter. And then you've got, you've got to figure out how to get 70 non-MAGA Republicans, and I think they still exist, to support 
a resolution to remove under Article 1, Section 5. It is a completely self-policing entity, the House and the Senate, Congress. We can't do anything about it. No taxpayer can file a lawsuit. No judicial watch can file a lawsuit. Nobody can move. There's no impeachment proceeding. It is this one thing, this one circuit breaker that the founding fathers put in. It's been used. I've seen the numbers sort of all over the place in my research. I'll take it from the Senate historian. There's been 19 examples since the founding of our country where an ex, a removal or an expulsion, expulsion has happened. Every, almost every one of them was during the Civil War, when Civil War people, kind of like what we talked about, about um, not having the ability to run for office or being, um, I forget the phrase at the moment, but uh, not being qualified, disqualified to run for office because of previously supporting uh, insurrection against, the, against the, the country. But there have been some examples, including sort of recent examples, of people being removed by that kind of vote. James Traficante, the late now but disgraced member from Ohio who got convicted of false tax returns, illegal contributions, obstruction, and racketeering. Okay, but you could, you could let me just explain this. Well, even with all those convictions, except I think if you're in jail, maybe, you still got to be expelled from the House or you're still a sitting member. It doesn't say if you're audit, there's no auto eject button in the Constitution that says if you're convicted of a crime, even if you're sitting in the penitentiary, that you're no longer a House member. So the House and the Senate have to get around to exercising and invoking their rights and this procedure under Article 1, Section 5. My prediction is that there's just going to be so much overwhelming evidence, as there has been, and so many prosecutions that either George Santos is going to resign because they're going to twist his arm to resign, which is usually what happens. Usually what happens when there is a movement to do an Article 1, Section 5 removal or expulsion. Usually that member gets the hint and the writing on the wall, and to save some the face, they resign. When they don't, they go through the process. <clears throat> I think he gets vote. ultimately removed or resigned. Won't stop the prosecutions, shouldn't stop the prosecutions. But I think that is how the, I think the end of George Santos, or whatever his name is, in the House of Representatives ends with a, a whimper, not a bang, with him resigning or the vote to expel. They'll certainly get all the Democrats. They just got to pick up 70 or so Republicans. Republicans deserve absolutely no credit for anything they've done with Santos. They are in bed with Santos. They are the party of George Santos, and we need to make sure that voters... know that each and every day. If Santos was in the Democratic Party, he would have won. He wouldn't have even made it in, into a Democratic uh, to be our nominee. And the moment we got wind of any of this, he'd be out in a in a second, in a second. Um, it is utterly despicable to have. A, but this is who he is. I mean, it's, it's just another is 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 it really you know I, I i said desantis but is it really much more different you know than all of these frauds i mean you got desantis talking about i'm giving tax breaks for stoves and gas stoves these people are idiots it's just it's just it's just idiocracy it's stupidity there are so many real important issues
issues that we need to focus on as a country. We need to be focused on jobs. We need to be focused on health care. We need to be focused on education. We need to make sure that we are building our infrastructure. We need to bring in, uh, we need to bring manufacturing jobs here to the country. We need to be protecting a woman's right to control her body. We need to be taking care of our veterans. We need to be focused on real issues and this stupid idiocracy of George Santos and all this dumb crap I see from Republicans every every day, and they're just constant violations of law. They're thumbing their nose in the Constitution, calling for the Constitution to be terminated. Donald Trump reposting statements, calling for a violent civil war, and then all these other Republicans saying, he's the leader of the party. It, enough is enough, and I'm glad that we're calling it out here on the Midas Touch Network. It's just, just, just calling it out here on Legal AF Popak. Great spending this time chatting with you on this weekend. want to thank all of our listeners and viewers for watching. Check out Killing County. If you haven't watched it on Hulu, let me know what you think. And please do me a favor. After you watch it, please post about it on social media. Talk about it on social media, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever. Um, let me know what you think about it. Use the hashtag Killing County. Spread the word about Killing County. I wonder County. if it's, really, it's on really, YouTube really now. A vital, vital docuseries that I think is important on so many levels. And I'm so proud to be a part of it. Make sure you subscribe to Legal AF uh, wherever uh, you can get to your uh, audio in addition to video. Subscribe here on the YouTube another channel. Another indictment, you your attorney audio, is check mine, out Trump. Everyone is talking about this new ice hack that's been on the news lately. If they're drinking this ice water, can help flood... This is Michael Popak, Legal AF. Well, we already have a ruling by the D.C. appellate three-judge panel against Donald Trump against his uh, lawyer, Evan Corcoran, the lead lawyer in everything related to Mar-a-Lago and the documents, national security documents that were improperly retained, and that criminal investigation by Jack Smith. You might be thinking, didn't I just hear earlier today on another hot take by, from Popak and Legal AF that they just fully briefed it over an eight-hour period by order of the appellate court, and it only all got briefed just by 6 a.m. How could we possibly be talking about a ruling just eight hours later? We're done, ladies and gentlemen. We are completely done. This is a 14-hour process by the appellate court three-judge panel, and they have ruled against Donald Trump. They have ruled to support the trial judge, the then chief judge of the D.C. Circuit Court, Beryl Howell, who at the time, until she uh, left the position and became just a regular old trial judge, she was responsible for all of the grand juries in the District of Columbia, that, including the ones Jack Smith is prosecuting in front of, um, related to Donald Trump. Evan Corcoran, who had um, all of the decision-making related to the Mar-a-Lago documents from the beginning, from the initial interaction between Donald Trump and the National Archives, the pretty please return all the documents, all the way to the subpoena that the Department of Justice had to issue because they were getting foot dragging from Donald Trump and getting nonsense and, and, and fraudulent and false statements being made to them, even by lawyers. And then the search warrant in June. All of that, Evan Corcoran touched all of that. Fingerprints are on all of that. And he's Christina Bob's boss for the purposes of interacting with the Department of Justice. Department of Justice filed evidence with Beryl Howell on Friday to convince her, based on the evidence that they had, that they at least had a prima facie um, uh, amount of evidence present to establish that Donald Trump committed a crime related to the Mar-a-Lago documents, and that he wittingly or unwittingly um, had his lawyers 
involved in that process. In other words, he used the lawyers to perpetrate the diaper Don. Used crimes to the judge Right, pretty cool. Diaper Don used his lawyers. Okay. The crime, the, the winning or unwitting part is whether the lawyers knew. It doesn't matter under the crime fraud exception of the attorney-client privilege, which we've talked a lot about, and in piercing the attorney-client privilege. It doesn't matter whether the lawyer participated willingly in that conspiracy or was duped by his own client. It just matters whether there was a fraud or a crime committed in the obtaining of the legal advice in the communications. And Beryl Howell on Friday ruled that there was. Trump and Corcoran moved for an appeal and to stay the order. And while the appellate court gave them the briefest of stays, really just from Saturday until Wednesday, that's it. They said, we're going to brief this really, really quickly. We're going to make this decision really quickly. Why? why you might be wondering are they moving so quickly i'll give you one reason it may be because jack smith is on a fast track to making a charging decision an indictment of donald trump related to mar-a-lago of all of the moving parts of all the grand juries in washington we've always thought on our podcast legal af that the one that jack smith was closest to the simplest case was mar-a-lago and the fact that the appellate court moved so quickly off of the ruling on Friday by Judge Beryl Howell indicates to me that, that uh, the Department of Justice has let it be known that they're at the very end. They're on the, if they're not on the one-yard line of making the charging decision, which, of course, is a recommendation by the special counsel to Merrick Garland. Merrick Garland can override it. I don't think he will here. And then it's the indict it, it goes, it, it's getting the indictment um, from, returned from the grand jury. They're moving awful quick here about top secret documents. Could be national security rationale for that. More likely, Department of Justice has got an itchy trigger finger and they want to indict, indict, indict. They need Evan Corcoran to go back in without attorney-client privilege and do it. So we've got a ruling today. We've got a ruling just hours after the full briefing by Donald Trump's lawyers and team and the Department of Justice working throughout the night and early morning to accommodate this trial deadline set by the three-judge panel. And the three-judge panel took another seven hours and reviewed everything and did the following. One, they said, we're getting rid of the stay. That administrative stay we put in place just to hold the ring while we looked at the issue, that's gone. Beryl Howell's decision ordering Evan Corcoran to testify about what we think is six topics in and around the subpoena and search warrant. Uh, that finding that Beryl Howell made about the crime fraud exception, 
applies. We support it. We are going to uphold her decision to compel Evan Corcoran to go back to the grand jury, could be as early as tomorrow,